It was late January when, following my golf match with the American president, I took off from Florida in my hot air balloon. As I travelled northward, the air became colder, but the basket that was for the time being my residence was luxuriously appointed and I had a good stock of provisions. Balloons were a novelty in the days of my ancestor, the first Baron Munchausen. The first time he saw one, he shot it out of the sky, along with its French navigator, with a fowling piece. My drift to the north, which was leisurely owing to light winds, was not interrupted by any such assault. The man from whom I'd hired the balloon was quite right about the efficiency of the gas used to keep it inflated. This gas, you may recall, he collected from the President's press conferences, and in truth it certainly was very economical. After many days of spectacular views, as I passed over the Appalachians, the Great Lakes and Niagara Falls, the snow-covered plains of Canada, and the frozen waters of Hudson Bay, I realised that the last of my gas bottles was almost empty. I had intended to make landfall in Iceland, but the balloon began to descend rapidly, and it was clear that I had been over-ambitious. Below me lay the Labrador Sea, dotted with many icebergs. My only chance of survival lay in aiming the balloon at one of these, and hoping that the basket did not disintegrate on impact. I identified my target, and at the last moment released the remaining presidential gas so that the basket hovered briefly above the iceberg. There was a rope ladder aboard. I threw it over the side, quickly climbed down, and secured my vessel to the ice with ropes and iron pegs. Well pleased with myself, I set out to explore my new home, the surface of which was approximately 50 metres long and 20 metres wide, with a small dome of ice in the middle. When I reached the far side of this dome, I discovered a polar bear stretched out on the ice, with its face toward the sea. I thought I would forego introductions and retire quietly to my basket. The bear must have picked up my scent, however, for it turned around and, seeing me, raised itself to its full height, some nine feet. I slid back to the basket as fast as I could, with the bear padding behind me, issuing interested growls. I climbed aboard, hauled in the rope ladder, and inspected my new companion, while she, for it was a female, circled my little fortress, sniffing inquisitively. I had rather hoped that she might be fat and without much of an appetite, but she was thin and hungry and seemed to be assessing me as a source of nutrition. I temporarily distracted her by throwing some food, a large ham, a cheddar cheese and a chocolate cake, onto the ice. While she was picking her way through these delicacies, I set about fashioning a fishing line from some of the wires by which the balloon was attached to the basket, using one of the shackles as a hook. I was able to cast the hook across the ice and into the sea, and almost instantly caught a twenty-pound Atlantic salmon. I presented this to the bear, and she seemed grateful, chocolate cake evidently not being her favourite dish although she had made short work of the ham and cheese. I cast the line again, and caught another salmon, which I also gave to the bear. For the next two or three hours I caught and she ate. A certain rapport developed between us. Darkness fell. She settled down with her back pressed hard up against the basket, and I leaned out and obligingly scratched her rump until she fell asleep. 
I could then step onto the ice and rearrange the deflated balloon so that it caught the prevailing wind and, filling like a sail, took the iceberg in an easterly direction. After this, I retired for the night. At first light, the bear stirred and put her nose over the edge of the basket, looking for her breakfast. I satisfied her by catching dozens of salmon all morning. She was an intelligent being and understood that her best interest lay in keeping me thus employed rather than eating me. So the days and nights continued until she was fully twice the weight she'd been when we first met. By now we were passing the southern tip of Greenland and my bear, as I had come to think of her, was so much restored that she flopped into the sea and struck out for land doing a powerful and elegant crawl. I was sorry to see her go. At one point I thought I saw her turn on her back and raise a paw in farewell. But this may have been a delusion caused by sentiment on my part. The wind kept pushing me eastward along the 60th parallel, give or take a degree. My food supplies were running low and I was cold. But what concerned me more was that the iceberg was melting fast. Already it had shrunk to about half its original size. I reckoned that I would miss Iceland by 300 miles and that my next chances of land were the Faroes, Shetland or Orkney. But would any of the iceberg be left by the time I reached one of these island groups? As it happened, I missed all three, but not long after sailing between Shetland and Orkney, I picked up a strong north-easterly which drove me south towards Scotland. By then the iceberg was diminishing so quickly that there would soon be room on it only for me. I made myself a paddle from a section of the basket and, when left with no other choice, abandoned basket and balloon to the waves, took up my stance atop the remaining block of ice and began to paddle. The grey coastline of Caithness was to starboard, and after another day I passed between the headlands that marked the entrance to the Cromarty Firth. By now the iceberg was no bigger than a piano stool. I guided it into an inlet and stepped ashore without even wetting my socks. To my great delight I was within walking distance of Shandwick Castle, the home of my friend the Countess of Shandwick, whose hospitality I had been enjoying six months earlier. You may recall that, owing to an error of etiquette, I had had to leave hurriedly without saying goodbye and so I was apprehensive when I arrived and asked to be admitted. I need not have worried. She welcomed me without recrimination and was eager to hear of my adventures, those same adventures which I now set down for the entertainment of the public. The news that by them was occupying everybody's mind concerned the rapidly spreading coronavirus. The first cases had been reported in the United Kingdom and it was only a matter of time before restrictions on people's movements were introduced. The Countess insisted that I stay with her as long as was necessary. I thanked her for her generosity, but said that she must first hear my confession, as I felt that I might be in some way responsible for the release of Covid-19 upon the world. You? 
she cried. Of all the far-fetched claims you've made, that is the most ridiculous I've ever heard. Listen, my dear friend, I explained. When I was last here, we visited an ancient churchyard where there was an old stone beneath which, according to local legend, a sack containing a cloud of cholera lay buried. You begged me not to raise that stone, but I disobeyed you. I returned the next day and did just that. And to my horror, there was an old sack of a ghastly yellowish colour which came to life and tried to escape. I captured it, commandeered a nearby post office van, and drove the sack to the gorge at Kiltern, where, as I thought, I made it secure. This was why I left you so suddenly. I was ashamed of my behaviour. But now, oh, I'm even more ashamed. What if I unwittingly released that pestilence, and, in a new form, it is now wreaking devastation around the globe? What if this is all my fault? Even by your standards, that is making too much of your own importance, she replied. Don't be so silly. Cholera is a bacterial infection spread through poor sanitation. It is highly contagious, but you don't catch it from somebody else breathing on you. Then why, I asked, were you so anxious that I should not disturb that gravestone? Because it's part of our heritage, she said. The story is interesting, and it brings visitors to the area. Not that we're likely to see many of them for a while, so you can forget about being responsible for this coronavirus. Now, it is carried and transmitted through the air, so the only responsibility you have is to stay here and not catch it or give it to anybody else. She was right, of course, and right too about the visitors. The country went into lockdown soon afterwards, and I have been here ever since, writing my memoirs. Every morning I write... And every afternoon, the Countess and I go for a walk. In the evenings, I keep myself occupied by learning new languages. I've already acquired a basic knowledge of Basque, Hungarian, Portuguese and Swahili. Ah, I do like a challenge. Perhaps these will be useful whenever I'm able to travel freely again. This afternoon, our walk took us past the cottage of the old woman, with whom, you may recollect, the Countess had had an interesting conversation all those months ago. The human race, this sage was convinced, was being repaid for its reckless mistreatment of the environment by flood, fire, storm and other manifestations of climate change. This, she had declared, was nature giving us a scalp as a warning that we should mend our ways. The old woman was in her garden when we passed. "'Well, no, Madge,' the Countess called across the fence. "'You said last year if we did not behave, we'd get another scalp from Mother Nature. Do you think that is what this virus is?' "'Oh, I cannot tell you,' came the reply. "'For I'm not a scientist or a, a politician or anything of that kind, and I'm glad I'm not. But it feels awfully like a scalp to me. But who's this gentleman? Has he moved in with you? Uh, for now, yes, he has, the Countess said, not at all put out by her directness. This is Baron Munchausen, an old friend. 
He's had the most amazing adventures over the last year. He's been around the world. He's met the Queen, the Russian president, and the American one. He's been swallowed by a whale and narrowly avoided being eaten by various wild animals. You would not believe half of what he's been up to. And yet, now he's confined to barracks, just like the rest of us. As he perhaps related to the old Baron Munchausen, who once visited the moon, the old woman asked. Indeed I am, madam, I said. I'm a direct descendant. Well, he knew my great-great-great-great-grandmother, she said. Oh, what a time she had with him. Oh, but I'm not going to stand out here shouting about it. When this is all over, you'll both need to come in for a dram, and I'll tell you the whole story. William Gaminara was 